All right, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Genesis 28. We, we ended in uh, verse 9 last week. We're going we're gonna to read verses uh, 10 through 22. We're going to finish out Genesis 28 this morning. It's on page 23 if you have one of our Bibles uh, from either of the tables in the back there. And for the next several chapters, we're going to see Jacob now take center stage. He's going to become the this, this central uh, character in the narrative. And over the course of these next several chapters, as we watch Jacob wrestle with others and with, even with God, we're going we're gonna to learn along with Jacob how to stop trying to control our lives and to trust God with them instead. And I need that. I hope, I hope you do too. I hope you recognize your need for that as well. We need that together. And so whether you've put your faith in Christ alone or you've been walking with him in faith for years, we will all benefit from Jacob's story if we pay attention to what God is doing through it. And so before we, we read his word and, and dig in, I want to pray and ask for the Spirit to lead us now. Father, we thank you for your word, that it is a firm foundation for our faith, that it points us to Jesus Christ, the one who came and gave himself as a ransom for us. Lord, we pray now that your spirit who dwells in us as a gift of your grace would uh, direct our hearts toward the love of Christ, the fellowship of the saints and your glory, and that you would indeed be glorified through the proclamation of your word as your hearers hear it and do it. In the power of your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. I want you to think for a minute about some of the biggest commitments that you've made in your life, okay? What are some of the biggest commitments that you've ever made? Marriage, probably. Friendships are, are some. Maybe it's a job you've been at forever. Uh, maybe it's parenting. Maybe it's something like, like um, uh, uh, committing to being clean and sober from here on out. Maybe it's something like, I want to live more of a healthy lifestyle, take care of the body that God has given me. Whatever it is, commitments, we we can recognize this, right? They're tough, they're costly, they're hard work. They require a great amount of patience and endurance and love and gentleness and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and self-control, right? All the, the, the fruit of the Spirit that God gives to us. And that's the thing. When we think about our relationship with God, we often fail to recognize or to realize the depth of the commitment that God has made to us. And so this morning, we're going to see when, through God's interaction with Jacob, this, this big idea, okay? God is way more committed to us than we are to him. And that's a really good thing. God is way more committed to us than we are to him. And it starts with his appearance to Jacob. Look at verse 10, chapter 28. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. He reached a certain place and spent the night there because the sun had set. He took one of the stones from the place, put it there at his head, and he lay down in that place. Now, if you remember from chapter 26, Beersheba is where the Lord appeared to Isaac and made the same promises to Isaac that he made to Abraham. And so God promised to be with Isaac as well. And in response to what God had said, Isaac built an altar there and he worshiped the Lord there. That was the moment that Abraham's God became Isaac's God, if you remember. And then fast forward now, and we have Isaac's son Jacob leaving, leaving this place where, where Isaac uh, came to worship the Lord for two reasons. One, his brother Esau wants to kill him, 
Because Jacob swindled Esau out of his birthright, and then he swindled Isaac into giving Jacob Esau's blessing. And then number two, Isaac is sending Jacob to Rebekah's family in Haran to find a wife. God had chosen Jacob. We've seen this over and over. God had chosen Jacob to be the recipient of the covenant promises over Esau before either one of them were born. But Jacob, we've seen over and over, has done some really sinful things to try to acquire those covenant blessings on his own. And now he's leaving the promised land. He's not taking anything with him. We're going we're gonna to have some flashbacks here to the, when Abraham, chapter 24, when Abraham sent his servant to go find a wife for Isaac. That servant went with all kinds of stuff, and he went trusting in the Lord. I want us to pay attention to what Jacob is doing here. He has left the promised land with nothing, and he's all alone. He's about 60 miles into his 550-mile journey to Haran, and then he decides to stop for the night. He's still inside the promised land, inside the land of Canaan. So he takes a stone, and he puts it under his, either under his head for a pillow or next to his head for protection, and he goes to sleep. And when he sleeps, he dreams. Look at verse 12. And he dreamed. A stairway was set on the ground with its top reaching the sky, and God's angels were going up and down on it. The Lord was standing there beside him saying, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your offspring the land on which you are lying. Your offspring will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out toward the west, the east, the north, and the south, All the peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. Look, I am with you and and will watch over you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. It's an interesting picture, isn't it? This, This stairway that connects heaven and earth. When when was the last time we came across an image like that? You remember? We've seen something similar to this in Genesis chapter 11. It's called the Tower of Babel, right? The last time heaven and earth were were somebody was trying to connect them both. uh, But the, the problem is when the humans did it, when the people did it, they wanted to go up to God and they wanted to take his glory. They wanted to make a name for themselves, right? What did that result in? Their judgment, they were spread out across the land. They were given different languages. Literally, they were babbling, right? And so here's Jacob's, but here in Jacob's dream, God is the one that's coming down in order to make his glory known, and he is bringing blessing with him. Two opposite pictures right there. When people try to go up and they want what God has, they get what they deserve. When God comes down and gives us what we don't deserve, we get blessed, right? But this isn't some sleepy dream. This isn't like Jacob wakes up and, and you know, you kind of remember it and then you go on with your life. This is a vision of reality. This is something that God is showing him. And it's in this vision that God graciously reveals himself to Jacob. And, he, and, he, and just as he uh, graciously revealed himself to Jacob's father and to Jacob's grandfather, to Isaac and to Abraham, this is the first time right here that God calls himself not only the God of Abraham, but also the God of Isaac. 
And that's significant. Why? Because now we see, as readers, we see that God is, in fact, keeping his promises, right? He's keeping his promises to Abraham. Back in chapter 17, he told Abraham, I will confirm my covenant that is between me and you and your future offspring through their generations. It's a permanent covenant to be your God and to be the God of your offspring after you. And to you and to your future offspring, I will give the land where you are residing, all the land of Canaan, as a permanent possession, and I will be their God. I am the God of Abraham and Isaac, of Abraham and his offspring, the future generation. If you remember from last week at the beginning of chapter 28, when Isaac sent Jacob away, he blessed him with similar wording, right? He said, may God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you and may you become an assembly of peoples. May God give you and your offspring the blessing of Abraham so that you may possess the land where you live as a foreigner and the the land that God gave to Abraham. Now in this dream, the God of Abraham and Isaac is showing his faithfulness to them by making those same covenant promises to the next generation. Just as he had promised to give land and offspring and blessing to Abraham and to Isaac, and so now does God give uh, these promises of these things to Jacob. And once again, God makes the promise that all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through Jacob and his offspring. He's made that promise now to each generation, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. This is a continuation. This is a narrowing of focus of the promise that he made back in Genesis 3.15. to bring the serpent crusher, the one who would come and defeat Satan and put an end to sin once and for all. This, This one will be a descendant of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob because God has made these promises. But God isn't just making these promises for Jacob's future. He's also making an amazing promise that impacts Jacob right now. What does God say to him in verse 15? He says, look, I am with you. You know what that means for Jacob? He left with nothing. He left with no one. What does that mean for him now? From here on out, Jacob will never be alone. He'll never be alone. He fled his homeland. He left everyone behind, but he's no longer out here on the journey by himself. The living God, the creator of the heavens and the earth has promised to remain with him. And with the promise of God's presence, P-R-E-S-E-N-C-E, not, you know, like the box that you open up. With the promise of God's presence comes the promise of his protection and his provision. Listen to what he says. He, He tells Jacob, I will watch over you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Now, God's not putting a time frame on his presence with Jacob right there. He's not saying, once I've done what I've promised, then you're on your own again. What God is saying there is he is assuring Jacob that he will never leave Jacob and he will never abandon his promises to Jacob. Jacob, I am here now and I'm not going anywhere. So how will Jacob respond to such a great promise? Let's find out. Look at verse 16. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. 
He was afraid, and he said, what an awesome place this is. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Now, in ancient Near, Near Eastern culture, people thought that deities were bound to specific locations and had no authority outside of the area to which they were tied. If you remember back in chapter 27 last week, when Isaac questioned Jacob, who was pretending to be Esau, and Isaac asked how he got the food so quickly, right? He sent, he sent Esau to go out and kill wild game and make a meal and bring it back, and next thing you know, here's, here's Jacob already with it. And he says, wow, that was fast. And what is Jacob's answer? He says, the Lord, your God, made, it, made my journey successful, or made me successful. The Lord, your God, made it happen for me. That's what he says. Jacob has not claimed his father's God as his own yet, but now his father's God is here with him while he expected his God to stay in Beersheba with his father. He's dumbfounded. He's startled awake by this revelation. He says, surely the Lord is in this place, and I I don't know it. I did not know it. And then in verse 17, he says, what an awesome place this is. Now, unfortunately, that word has lost its true sense of meaning for us in English. We tend to call a lot of things awesome. It's a word I throw around way too much. And just, just flippantly, we say things like, man, that was an awesome show. Or, hey, you did an awesome job, right? When we say things like that, awesome means excellent or, or amazing. And while we could certainly ascribe those words to the Lord himself, That is not what awesome means here. In verse 17, the words awesome and afraid are the same Hebrew word. So in English, we could reword it this way. Jacob was afraid and said, what a fearsome place this is. What a fearsome place this is. Jacob is confronted with the reality of God's presence The God who created the heavens and the earth show himself in all of his glory in this vision to Jacob. He's overwhelmed by God's majesty, by his power, by his glory, by the fact that he's with him and not just back with his dad. And he's right then to call this place awesome. He says, this is none other than the house of God. In other words, this place is where God lives This is his temple. Now, this realization, if you think, Moses wrote the Pentateuch, he's the primary author, he's writing to the the wilderness generation, the, the people of Israel, descendants of Jacob, who are getting ready to take the promised land, to come back into Canaan after they were uh, spent 400 years in Egypt in in uh in slavery and God brought them out through Moses and took them to the mountain and showed them his law and 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 made them a people. And then, and then they disobeyed, and then uh, his, he sent his judgment upon them, made them wander for 40 years in the wilderness. A whole generation died, this new generation, this young generation, who probably were too young to remember or weren't alive yet when God brought them out of Egypt. They're wandering and they're waiting. And they're getting ready now. God has promised to bring them into the promised land through, uh, through Joshua. How valuable is this statement by Jacob to say this is where God dwells? 
if you're that generation getting ready to go back into this land, isn't that amazing to think that that's where God is? Even though you also have seen his presence with you wherever you've gone. He's led your way and he's bringing you back in. God has already promised to be with Jacob wherever Jacob goes, but now we see that God intends for Jacob and his descendants to be with God wherever he is. That's a theme we're going to see over and over and over in Scripture. Jesus says it. Right now you can't come with me, but I'm going to prepare a place for you so that where I am, there you may also be. Jacob also calls this place the gate of heaven in verse 17. We've seen in previous chapters in Genesis that the gate to a city was a really important place, right? It's where all the leaders gathered. It was where, where uh, uh, they did their business. It was where they, they conducted uh, or carried out their decisions. Abraham made an agreement with Ephron the Hethite at the city gate to purchase the field and the cave uh, that he ended up burying Sarah in and now that he's buried in, in, in uh, near uh, the city of Hebron. Now God has met Jacob at the gate of heaven and promised his presence, his provision, his protection. And even though Jacob is afraid of God's glory, surely in this moment he sees God's goodness in these promises, right? Surely Jacob is going to take God at his word here just as his father and his grandfather did before him, right? Let's look and see verse 18. Early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that was near his head and he set it up as a marker. He poured oil on top of it and named the place Bethel, though previously the city was named Luz. And then Jacob made a vow, if God will be with me and watch over me, watch over me during this journey, sorry, I lost my place for a second. Uh, if he provides me with food to eat and clothing to wear, and if I return safely to my father's family, then the Lord will be my God. This stone that I have set up as a marker will be God's house, and I will give you a tenth of all that you give to me. After Jacob wakes up from his dream, he takes the stone that he was using, and he sets it upright as a marker, and he pours olive oil on it, and he names this place Bethel, which means house of God, right? He said, this is the house of God, so this is what he names it. So far, so good, right? Not if we understand what Jacob doesn't do here. Back in chapter 12, when God first called Abraham and he told Abraham to leave Haran and head to the land of Canaan, he's going the opposite direction that Jacob is going right now. Abraham stopped in Canaan at a place called Shechem where he built an altar and he worshiped the Lord after God had appeared to him and promised to give the land to Abraham's offspring. Then Abraham moved on. And he set up his tent just to the east of where Jacob is now. And he also built an altar there, and he worshiped the Lord there. And in chapter 13, after Abraham came back from Egypt, he stopped at the same place near Bethel, and he worshiped the Lord again at the altar that he had built. Now, I already mentioned in chapter 26, when the Lord appeared to Isaac in Beersheba, and he promised to be with him and bless him with many offspring, and Isaac built an altar there, and he worshiped the Lord. What's missing in this scene with Jacob? An altar. An altar. He set up a memorial stone, also called a sacred pillar, 
Now, these were common in Canaanite worship, but they were explicitly prohibited by God later among the people of Israel. Exodus 23, 24. Do not bow and worship to the Canaanites' gods and do not serve them. Do not imitate their practices. Instead, demolish them and smash their sacred pillars to pieces. Deuteronomy 16, 21 and 22. Do not set up an Asherah of any kind of wood next to the altar you will build for the Lord your God. And do not set up a sacred pillar. The Lord your God hates them. Instead of an altar, Jacob sets up a sacred pillar. And instead of worshiping God there, what does he do? He puts conditions on the relationship in verse 20 and 21. If God will be with me and watch over me during this journey I'm making... If he provides me with food to eat and then clothing to wear, and if he returns me safely to my father's family, then the Lord will be my God. Then I will turn this sacred pillar into an altar and worship him, and then I will give him a tenth of everything he gives to me. What is Jacob asking for right here? What are his ifs? God's presence, his provision, his protection. Hasn't God already offered those? Hasn't God already promised to give him those? Yeah. But Jacob wants to see it before he believes it. Now tell me, is that faith? Is that faith? Not according to Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11.1 1 says faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. In other words, faith, faith doesn't ask for proof. Faith is the proof. Faith looks forward to the confident, with confident expectation that what God promises, God will accomplish. Faith takes God at his word. It believes that what God is speaking is what God is doing. Jacob is not expressing faith here. He's expressing unbelief. God is not his God yet. the way he is Isaac's God and Abraham's God. So is everything that's taken place here for nothing then? Is God wasting his time with Jacob? Not at all. Why? Because even though God is not Jacob's God in Jacob's eyes yet, catch this, God is already God in his own eyes. He's already Jacob's God in his own eyes. Why? Because he's made promises he intends to keep. He has made promises he intends to keep. Notice that God has no ifs and thens in what he says to Jacob. That's because those promises aren't based on Jacob's commitment to God, but on God's commitment to Jacob and to Isaac and to Abraham and all the way back to the first two he created in the garden. And over the next several chapters, we're going to watch God patiently break Jacob down and strip him of his own self-reliance until Jacob humbly realizes that he can't rely on himself and he must rely on God and God alone. God is far more committed to Jacob than Jacob is to God. And God is far more committed to you and to me than we are to him. And God has shown the depth of his commitment to Jacob and to us by doing what he promised to, he, that he would do. He sent the serpent crusher 
from Jacob's family line so that we might receive the blessing of forgiveness and salvation through him. In John chapter 1, in the New Testament, Jesus, the serpent crusher, he had an encounter with a man named Nathaniel who had some unbelief of his own. Listen to this conversation. John 1, 43 through 51. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. He found Philip and he told him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida and the hometown of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and he told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law. And by the way, so did the prophets. Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nathanael asked him. Come and see, Philip answered. Then Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and, he sit, and, and said about him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Isn't that an interesting phrase? Remember, we, we haven't gotten there yet, but Jacob's name becomes Israel. Here truly is a Jacobite in whom is no deceit. Have we seen anything else besides deceit in Jacob yet? Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me, Nathanael asked? Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now, Nathanael is way out of physical eyesight here. Jesus says, I saw you. That this was his answer. Rabbi, Nathanael replied, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus responded to him, do you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than this. And then he said, Truly I tell you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on a stairway on the Son of Man. What is Jesus doing right here? He's telling us that he is the stairway in Jacob's dream. God is revealing to Jacob what we get to see in Jesus. Jacob's dream ultimately points us to Jesus Christ. When God promised Jacob that all the peoples on the earth would be blessed through Jacob and his offspring, when God made that promise in the garden, when God made that promise to Abraham and to Isaac and to everyone else along the way, this is what God was talking about. That his one and only son, Jesus Christ, would come from heaven and clothe himself in humanity, would be born of a virgin Mary and trace through the lineage of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He lived a perfect life. He died a sacrificial death and he rose in power from the grave so that all who rely on him and not on themselves become recipients of all that God has promised. Isn't that amazing? Christ took our place on the cross and he bore the full wrath of God that we should have received because of our sinful rebellion against him. Through Christ's atoning sacrifice, we have been reconciled to God for all eternity. And because Christ rose from the grave and returned to the Father, we will also rise with him and live with God forever. This is amazing. But it's not just securing our future. His sacrifice impacts us right now. Jesus was forsaken so that we can hear our heavenly Father say to us, look, I am with you. I am with you, and I will watch over you wherever you go. I will bring you to the promised land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. I will never leave you, and I will never forsake you. 
when we stopped depending on ourselves and we started depending on Christ through faith, God put his Holy Spirit inside us so that we would have the very presence of God dwelling in us forever. You know what that means? We don't know what all that means. But it's true. It's real. But, but you know what it means that we, we can know? It means from here out, we'll never be alone. We'll never be alone. No matter how much we lose in this life, no matter how many times we fail to obey our Lord, no matter how much hardship comes in, we never, ever will be alone. God is with us, and he will bring us home. He will never abandon us. He will never abandon his promises to us. And because his Holy Spirit lives in us, you know what that makes us? Ephesians tells us we are the temple, his church. We are the house of God now. But Christ has also gone to the Father and to prepare a place for us. I said this earlier. And guess what? He's coming back again for all of his people so that we will be with him where he is forever and without end. Listen to what we have to look forward to. We're going to see something else come down out of heaven in Revelation 21. Same John that wrote the Gospel of John captured those words of Jesus to Nathaniel. He says this, John 21, or Revelation 21, 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity. Look, I am with you. God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. And we saying, let your kingdom come here. Let your will be done here. That's what we're asking for. How are you responding to such a great vision? to such a great revelation, to such a wonderful picture of God's promises? Are you still relying on yourself, building your own kingdom here? I just want to tell you that it won't last. I'm sure there are plenty more in here that would say the same thing. We've tried. It doesn't work. Are you building sacred pillars instead of altars? Are you giving the appearance of allegiance to God while you worship other things? I want to tell you that those things won't last either. When Christ returns, he will topple every kingdom and destroy every false god and bring his righteous judgment upon everyone who has rejected him and pursued those things instead. And we will know what awesome means. But even, listen, even if you walked in those doors this morning rejecting Christ, guess what? You can walk out fully surrendered to him. This is God's revelation to you. This isn't a dream. This is reality. This is his word that he's given to us, that you can know this is true and real and good. So why not trust him instead of trusting yourself? 
or other things. Why not confess your sin to him and your need for his forgiveness? Listen, if you do that, he will freely forgive. I love his promise in John 10. Anyone who comes to me, I will not turn away. It's such a great promise. So come. And you can find forgiveness for all of your sin, past, present, and future. Maybe you've already found forgiveness in Christ, but right now you're in a season where you're putting conditions on your relationship to him. Maybe you want to experience his presence. God, if you just give me a sign and show me, fill in the blank. Then I will fill in the blank. Or maybe you want his protection. God, if you will keep me safe from, fill in the blank, then I will fill in the blank. Or maybe it's his provision that you're after. God, if you will give me, fill in the blank, then I will fill in the blank. Do you have any ifs and thens with God? Maybe you feel like you're more committed to God than he is to you right now. Like you're investing more into the relationship than he is. You're trying to be obedient. You're making sacrifices. You're, you're giving your all, but it doesn't feel like God is reciprocating. Maybe you've been praying for something spe- specifically for a, a long time, and it seems like he's refusing to answer. Maybe you've been walking faithfully through hardship, and it seems like he just keeps allowing more difficulties into your life. When you feel like you're more committed to God than God is to you, you will be tempted to start giving him a bunch of ifs and thens. Every one of us does this. Every one of us does this. But I want you to know this. God is so committed to you and to me that he has graciously already answered all of our ifs and thens. How has he done it? He's given us 66 books. 66 books that are chock full of promises that he's made and promises that he's kept and promises that he's made and has yet to fulfill. But his track record is perfect. The Bible gives evidence after evidence of God's faithfulness to his people through his presence, his protection, his provision. It tells us over and over of how he makes himself known and gives his love to the undeserving, how he turns his enemies into his children, how he brings the dead to life. It reveals to us Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, grace incarnate, the serpent crusher who defeats Satan, sin, and death, and the stairway who brings people to God and God to people. God is so committed to you and me that he's graciously given us his Holy Spirit to live inside us so that we never go without his presence or his protection or his provision. His spirit seals us and keeps us safely in Christ until Jesus returns to give us our heavenly inheritance. The spirit is the down payment for that. He ministers to our hearts and he gives us what we need to endure even the most difficult things in this life and this, that this world throws at us while we wait for eternity to come. God is so committed to you and me that he's graciously given us one another as his church so that we can tangibly see his presence, his protection, and his provision. We have the privilege of sharing in the same love that Jesus prays for this in John 17, the same love that the God the Father has for God the Son. Lord, may they be one 
them in me as I am in you. We have the joy of serving one another in that love and carrying each other's burdens together. We have the advantage of helping one another guard against the lies and lusts of this world, against the sinful desires of our own hearts and the wicked schemes of the devil as we speak the truth in love to one another and keep pointing each other to Christ and his glorious gospel. Here are some ifs and thens that we ought to be saying over and over. If God hadn't first come to us, then we would have never come to him. If God hadn't sent his son to die for us, then we would still be dead in our sins. If God hadn't sent his spirit to live in us, then we would not have the desire or the power to do what pleases him. If God had not given his word to us, then we would never know the way of salvation or the hope of what's to come. If God hadn't given us his church, then we would miss out on the deep fellowship and encouragement that helps us endure the things that we face. You see, God is way more committed to you and me than we are to him. And in his commitment to us, he's given us everything and everyone we need in order for us to remain committed to him. He's revealed himself to us and he's shown us the stairway, Jesus Christ, who's brought God to us and us to God and has united us to him forever if we want to remain committed to God, then we must rely on Christ. We must rely on Christ and all that God has given us along with him. God is patient with us. Isn't that such good news? And even when we fail in our commitment to him, God will graciously prove, prove his commitment to us over and over until he has done every last thing he has promised to do. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy to us in Jesus Christ. We thank you that there is no greater commitment than what you've shown to us through him. And we pray, God, that you would utilize all those things in our lives, your word, your spirit, your church, your son, that we would, we would welcome all of those things and, and walk in those things through those things, you would strengthen our commitment to you. Thank you that you will never fail and you will bring us home. We love you and we pray in Jesus' name, amen.